The most valuable things that I've learned in addiction treatment, I've learned from my patients. It's 100%, no question. They know what they're talking about. They are the ones using the substances. They're the ones feeling the withdrawal. I don't care what the book says. I don't care what the other doctors or nurse practitioners say. It's just, nope, they are the experts. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Opioids are some of the best, most effective drugs in human history. Without fentanyl, morphine, things like surgery cancer treatment would be very different and very painful. Where would human society be without these drugs? I think we'd be pretty fucked. Of course, opioids have a pretty well-known side effect. Take too much and it could halt your breathing. This is basically how every opioid overdose becomes fatal. Thankfully, we have an equally wonderful drug that takes care of opioid overdose. That's called naloxone. We've talked a lot about naloxone on the show in the past, and you can browse our archives and all of our writing to learn more about it. But before there was naloxone, which came on the market in the 1960s, chemists were searching long and hard for a competitive opioid receptor antagonist that would do the magic naloxone does. Tinkering with these opioid antagonists was part of a broader project to discover a, quote, non-addictive pain reliever, one that didn't cause respiratory depression or addiction or even physiological dependence. In pursuit of this magical non-opioid, some not-so-fun drugs were invented along the way. Nalrephine is one of these examples, and that drug can indeed reverse an opioid overdose, but it also causes hallucinations, dysphoria, pretty dark stuff. There's a uh, history of nalrephine tests that cops would use, to give to people who they arrested. If they suspected this person was an opioid user, they would kind of like dare them to try nalrephine. And if they responded with gnarly withdrawal, then they would know this person was on opioids. Another drug that came out of looking for a treatment for heroin addiction was, this is a a fun one to pronounce, cyclolazine. And I just call it Cyclops. So, unfortunately, Cyclops could also cause severe malaise and hallucinations and all these terrible feelings. And it really, you know, wasn't that great of a painkiller. So, you know, a lot of these drugs were were dead ends and lost their uh, favor in the medical community. But it's an important history to know to bring us to today's episode, and that's about naltrexone, also known by its brand name Vivitrol, which is heavily marketed by the manufacturer, the pharmaceutical company known as Alkermes. Like naloxone, naltrexone is an opioid antagonist that also knocks opioids off of receptors in the brain. But naltrexone's properties have some key distinctions. Naltrexone is typically, you know, used in the form of a long-acting monthly injection for opioid use disorder. It can also be used in the form of a daily pill to treat alcohol use or some other compulsive behaviors with pretty shoddy success rates if you look at the scientific literature. Naltrexone, what it does as an opioid receptor antagonist is block the euphoric and sedative effects of opioids. 
And unlike naloxone, naltrexone is generally not used to reverse opioid overdoses. And unlike nalrefine and cyclops, naltrexone is used widely today for all kinds of things. But it's a pretty controversial drug. A lot of ambivalence around this drug, especially among people in harm reduction and abolitionist communities. There's people who have taken naltrexone and say that it saved their life, and there's others who think it's uh, way overused and way less effective than drugs like methadone and buprenorphine. So when you bring up naltrexone in certain spaces and in front of certain audiences, you're bound to get a lot of different kinds of heated responses. And so we're going to run through all that for today's episode. And I'm Zach Siegel, co-host of Narcotica, your friendly drug journalist. We'll be on a ride round and round talking about naltrexone. And we're going to take a long, hard look at this drug and why this drug is so divisive and polarizing and what role it should or shouldn't play in addressing the current public health emergency of polysubstance overdoses. So that's really what today's episode is about. And before jumping into everything, there's a few housekeeping and things I'd I'd like to get out there. So you might have heard that Narcotica, the podcast, has merch. And you can check out this pretty sick stuff. We've got mugs and shirts and all kinds of things at narcocast.myshopify.com. And get some cool stuff. We will place this link and everything else in the show notes. Um, Yeah, we also have t-shirts. We have stickers. So check it all out. Because for a limited time, you can use the code NARCO10 to get 10% off of any purchase. That's N-A-R-C-O-10. Again, everything at narcocast.myshopify.com you can find there or you can go to our website narcocast.com and click shop over in the corner so get some narcotica swag and we really appreciate if you do because our podcast is totally listener funded and ad free you're not going to hear you know any rehab marketing or we're not trying to sell you a mattress we're not trying to send you to a Malibu ranch where you do some horse petting to treat your addiction. You're not getting any of that here, so stay with us. All right, before getting on with the show, I would just like to plug our Patreon. You can check us out at patreon.com slash narcotica, and we're incredibly grateful. We have over 70 people supporting us on Patreon right now, and if you are one of them, Huge thanks to you, and if you're not one of them and you listen to the show, think about kicking us a couple of dollars. Anything really, truly helps. All right, that's enough of me babbling, and I'm really excited for today's episode. Let's start the show. Our guest today is Nancy Curran, a nurse practitioner who has been practicing for five years in an OBOC clinic in the Lowell, Massachusetts area, treating both opioid and alcohol use disorders. She prescribes buprenorphine, both Suboxone and Sublocade, as well as Naltrexone, better known as Vivitrol. She also treats patients who need Hep C treatment. Nancy is passionate about advocating and educating for her patients about their medication options, as well as their rights. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Zach. It's great to be here. Hi, Troy. I appreciate your having me on so we can talk about naltrexone. Yeah, me too. Okay, so uh, Nancy, when we talked on the phone the other day, uh, you said you prescribed naltrexone for many patients, uh, but you clearly have some strong misgivings about this drug. So let's start with, can you walk us through a situation where you would prescribe it And before we get into the drawbacks of naltrexone, what kind of benefits does it provide? So I guess I'll start with um, like just brief overview. So three medications that are currently used, um, prescribed to treat opiate use disorder, um, methadone being the gold standard, um, buprenorphine 
which comes in a sublingual tablet or film uh, formula. And the newer product is called Sublocade. It's a once a month subcutaneous injection. So it's like a slow release, long acting formula. Um, now, when a patient comes to me for starting treatment, a lot of times they have a pretty good idea of which way they want to go. Um, a lot of times their decision is, is partly influenced by, you know, a number of factors, um, you know, rumors that they've heard, things they've heard. I have a lot of people coming to me now saying, oh, I heard, I, I saw on TikTok the sublocade is great for when you want to come off of Suboxone. Um, or my parents want me to get the shot. I, I, I have to get the shot, meaning Vivitrol. And so for what I, what I try to do is educate a patient on, you know, how the medications work. You know, I draw out a terrible little sketch of the mu receptor and describe how these medications affect the opioid receptors, um, talk about the risks, risks of overdose, talk about the benefits. And then depending where the patient is at, you know, like sometimes ideally they're at a crossroads where they can go either way toward if they want naltrexone or suboxone. But like a lot of people know, there's a very lengthy induction period to to start Vivitrol. You have to wait, like this was five years ago, seven to 10 days after your last opioid use or Suboxone. And that's become closer to 10 to 14 with the longer lasting life of the fentanyl that's out and about today, uh, at least in my neighborhood in the Lawrence Lowell area. In fact, people have to wait 96 hours to avoid precipitating withdrawal when they start Suboxone. So, so that length of time that they need to go with nothing except comfort meds to get on the Vivitrol shot is daunting. Um, and I even offer, if the patient is determined, you know, I tell them right up front, they're in charge of their treatment plan. So I'll educate them. I'll tell them what I would recommend. But they're ultimately the ones that decides which way they want to go. I've had patients halfway through the week call me and say, nope, I'm, I'm out. Just send in that Suboxone prescription. I, I can't do this for another seven days. Um, and that's totally fine. Um, so at any rate, now benefits of Vivitrol. Uh, for some people, it's seen as more convenient because it's a once a month shot. Um, it's a shot they get in their glutes once a month. Um, it is safe to, and clinically acceptable to give it after 21 days and not wait the 28. This is something I strongly recommend for my patients that are going to start Vivitrol for opioid use, um, simply because the risk of overdose is far greater after you pass the two-week point because they can overcome that blockade and quite easily overdose. Um, what else? A lot of patients see the fact that they won't be physically dependent on naltrexone or Vivitrol. They see that as a huge draw. Um, and what's particularly tough for me is is the younger folks, like say, you know, under 28, early 20s, you know, younger folks are like, can't fathom the idea of being on a medication for the rest of their life. They're like, no way. Like they're just five days in detox. I'm good. And it's, it's really hard to be like, yeah, but someday you're going to be on blood pressure medicine. And um, at any rate, the lack of, of physical dependence is a big draw. Those are the benefits um, to naltrexone. And I typically honestly spend most of my time when I'm talking about Vivitrol, you know, reviewing at length, not only the induction period, but the risks of overdose, um, which are, you know, many and significant. Yeah, it seems like that uh, waiting period is a really critical time because not only is your tolerance going down, I mean, that's really difficult to get through. I mean, we, we don't have to tell people on this show that quitting opioids is hard. You know, what's uh, tough is when someone gets out of detox and they are told from the facility, go right to the clinic. You can get your Vivitrol shot. And it's like, ah, 
they've been on a methadone withdrawal protocol, so they can't get Vivitrol. Even if they had done like a clonidine librium, no, you know, no buprenorphine, no methadone for the acute detox phase, that was the previous five days. So it's it's too soon, and that's that's heartbreaking because you can just see the disappointment you know, in the patient's face because they thought this is it, you know, they're going to get the shot and everything will be okay. So to branch off of, of what you've been saying, you know, something that kind of strikes me about the difficulty of your job is like the broader climate and context in which you're practicing it. And what I mean by that is like, you're dealing with what this patient, what this person has learned in the world and all the context they're living in, all the information they've accumulated in a lifetime, whether it's on the street or on TikTok or even the 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 detox ward they're they're leaving from, they hear all this stuff and they bring all that stuff to you into your office. And so like over the years, you must have a heard it all and b a lot of this might be pretty predictable like you know what kind of context someone might be might be swimming in and it's like when they say the words like i heard on tiktok or my you know the de- the the previous provider said this and i think what what i'm trying to get at here is like what is the climate like right now with regards to people's thoughts about these medications like there's obviously probably some uh constant in that a lot of people probably find that they don't want to be dependent on an opioid as 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 a plus and so they might be drawn to naltrexone for that but like if you're reading somebody and you know that they're in like a really precarious place like how do you maybe try to get around or steer them in the right direction. Like, like I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, if you know someone is really not the right candidate for Vivitrol, but that's what they want, what do you do? It's a very long appointment. <laughs> <laughs> Motivational interviewing. <laughs> I'll tell, I tell my patients this all the time. And it's, it's cool because they seem really pleased when I say this. Um, you know, before I was a, to get to the nurse practitioner was, you know, like um, just about 11 years of college, like half a doctorate and most of it part-time. I tell my patients that literally everything, the most valuable things that I've learned in addiction treatment, I've learned from my patients. It's 100%, no question. So I never, I never, de- I mean, you know, they know what they're talking about. They are the ones using the substances. They're the ones feeling the withdrawal. I don't care what the book says. I don't care what the other doctors or nurse practitioners say. It's just, nope, they are the experts. So it's basically, I offer them what we have to offer. And then I don't want to say I do my best to talk them out of it if it's not appropriate, but but I present the risks in such a way that I hope that they make, you know, the, what I believe to be the right decision. And lots of times, you know, I have a handful of patients that have done really well with um, naltrexone with, with Rivitrol for, I'm just kind of ignoring it for alcohol at this point um, for, for the purposes of this show, of course. And if it's efficacy rate, for not using alcohol is like 10%. So, um, you know, that, that speaks to the importance of like all the other stuff, not just medication. And that is what is so frustrating with naltrexone is the belief partly by the users, but really heavy duty by the rest of the world, the family, the parents, the spouses, that it's like, you just get the shot and you're good. Um, you know, I, I shared a, a sad anecdote with Troy yesterday that I had a patient for a long time, years, probably the whole five years that I've been in practice, 
um, he and his brother, and they, you know, spotty, haphazard, showing up here and there, always Vivitrol, never Suboxone, because in their words, they were like, I know I'll abuse it. So I was like, okay, but you know you're going to precipitate, right? <laughs> yep. They were like, not a problem. And, and off, you know, they went. And so one of these young men did overdose and die this summer. And when his grandma uh, notified me and, and called me on the phone, left me a message, I called her back. And it was so heartbreaking because almost not surprising, you know, I'm thinking to myself because it's such a risky, um, I mean, it's poison drug supply, period, you know, and it's a very risky neighborhood around, um, you know, as far as like people are just like throwing samples to you in traffic, like seriously. But the grandma said to me, he'd had his shot. When was it? you know, a week and a half ago, he had his shot. How, how could this happen? He'd had his shot. And I was just like, and I just, you know, apologized and, you know, tried to console her. And I, uh, I mean, each time that happens, my almost my only, and I've been thinking about this since I talked to Troy I want to say 95% of patients I've lost to overdose that I've been aware of, of course, because some drop off and, and I don't know where they might have ended up, but they've been on Vivitrol, um, not Suboxone. You know? Wow. That's, that's just really shocking. It's, it's like each awesome. time I get a little angrier, and then when the drug rep shows up with lunch, I'm just like, no, thank you. I have a copy of the XBOT study, but now I have an update to XBOT. So I'm just holding on to that until next time. Yeah. It seems like naltrexone is thrown at so many situations. It's not surprising. I mean, they spent billions of dollars and they're spending to this day on the marketing strategies. And one article I read is was... Uh, very poignantly captured it by saying marketing it to a to law enforcement and corrections environments right captive audience right so you want to get your want to behave you're getting out of jail you're going to get your vivitrol shot on the way out never mind that leaving jail puts you in and of itself yeah being released from jail you're at 120 times higher risk of overdose captive audience and really like a double meaning (laughs) i mean i mean it's just immoral period i'll say it's fucked up i mean i don't think you should i don't care what the drug is i don't think you should be marketing to cops because what the fuck they're cops exactly and nothing against cops or anything necessarily but like they don't prescribe drugs they have a different role let them do that i mean like i I said to a, a probation officer once that came for like a lunch meeting because Law enforcement is not allowed at the clinic during any open hours at all whatsoever for, you know, reasons to not make our clients feel uncomfortable. And and one of the POs said, hey, could you guys let us know, like, notify us of, you know, when drug test results come back? And I almost fell out of my chair and just said, yeah, no, like 42 CFR, the federal privacy ruling that's above and beyond HIPAA, which I'm sure they're well, you know, you're well aware of, that would absolutely prohibit that unless we had signed permission. And so many times we do, of course, because we do have to share results at the patient's request with their POs, with DCF, what have you. However, I said to the room at large, I didn't go to nursing school and become a nurse practitioner and incur truckloads of debt to become a cop. And like, as soon as the words were leaving my mouth, it's like, oh, come back. But not really. You know what I mean? Because stay in your lane like judges. You know what? If you don't practice medicine, I tell you what, how about this? I won't practice law. Okay. How about that? That's perfect. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, right off the bat, there's a million things you just said that 
I want to dive into, but, you know, to go back a few steps, like you, you mentioned anecdotally that the patients who are on Vivitrol tend to fatally overdose more often than patients on, on buprenorphine and, and probably on methadone. And that's borne out in all the scientific literature I've seen about this and in your own personal experience. And and I think, you know, it would be helpful to hear someone with your background and training and education to talk about why that's the case. And so there is something uh, basically in the literature that refers to opioid receptor upregulation and super sensitivity caused by that upregulation. And so these are kind of, we're getting in the weeds here with neuroscience and, 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 and receptors and such. But it's pretty like, simple though. Yeah, let's talk about that. Like what about this drug in particular increases or in some way enhances the uh, risk of a fatal overdose when someone goes back to using like a full agonist like like the fentanyl in Massachusetts. Yep. So the so this is part of my little terrible artwork that I do um, sketching it out for a patient. So it's almost like if you think of the mu receptor, the opioid receptor, as being like a lock. So if you take a full opioid agonist, and at this point, the patient and their family, their eyes are crossing. They're like, what? But if you compare it to like a key and, and you draw a little circle, it fits in that receptor like perfectly as if it was a key that not only fit the lock, but it opens the lock and off you go. Zoom, zoom. Right. And by the same token, if you picture like an X, Y axis, the more you take of that full opioid agonist, whether it's methadone or oxy or fentanyl or whatever, the more you take, the more you, of an effect you get, up to and including, um, you know, initially relieving withdrawal symptoms and perhaps euphoria and then overdose and death. Now, when you take a partial opioid agonist, such as buprenorphine, that's the key. Like I draw a triangle. So it's like jams in there. It satisfies it. It's not perfectly shaped like it, but it, it's satisfying that receptor. It's satisfying your cravings if it's adequately, if enough receptors are adequately covered. And in the, in the lock and key, it's like a key that fits in the lock, but it doesn't open the lock. It's not really, you know, it's not really doing much that's noticeable. And in the XY axis, if you picture it as you're taking more of the buprenorphine, up to 16 milligrams, you get a little bit more of an effect, a little bit more of your receptors are covered. Above, it's got a ceiling effect, 16 milligrams. So beyond 16 milligrams, you're not really getting much of anything. So now number three is naltrexone. So the third example that I sketch out, and I kind of draw that sort of like super glue covering those locks. So nothing's getting in those locks. However, enough, depending how many weeks in to the shot you are, if enough full opioids are introduced, they can rip that super glue right off, flood the receptors, and, and that's what leads to the overdose. So the, the overdose is, you know, that's part of the reason with getting out of jail or coming out of treatment where you have nothing on your receptors, nothing resembling an opioid on your receptors, either buprenorphine or real opioids, is they're wide open and they're going to just suck up all that incoming opioid. It wasn't quite so drastic before the advent of this fentanyl that's out and about. Um, and so it's, I find that's really helpful for patients and not to say like, oh, B-Nuts of Oxone gives you protection against overdose. But this is where I, if they're still conscious, this is where I explain about how the affinity, so if this, uh, buprenorphine has a really strong grip on your opioid receptors. A stronger grip, a higher affinity, in fact, than any other opioid except for your like hospital grade fentanyl. So like musical chairs, when those musical chairs, those receptors are all nicely covered with adequate amounts of buprenorphine, 
in comes some oxy or some fentanyl and ding, 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 kind of bounces off. It's not really going to, you're not really going to feel a heck of a lot. Maybe a little, most folks say, oh my God, just, that was a waste of 40 bucks. Um, but like I had to try it. Um, and supplicate, and we'll talk about that separately if you want. But in Norway and Finland, they're starting research studies exploring the potential protective effect of sublocade, um, preventing or giving a little protection against overdose, uh, which is something naltrexone cannot claim, and it can't ever claim that because of the way the receptors, because science says. One other thing I hear claimed by Alkermes, and, and this is even on like the SAMHSA.gov website, is that naltrexone, in addition to acting as a blocker for at least, you know, those first few weeks, it also does something for cravings. Like, can, can you talk about that? Because, like, I, like I, I don't know. I mean... Right. And, we... and patients, do, they, do, um, they do say that. So for the folks that it's working for, and I have a small handful of folks that it's been several years, once a month or close to it, they get that shot every month and they're good. Um, and they don't have cravings. So in addition to also having like those other parts of life, you know, employment, housing, um, supportive family members or friends or significant others, you know, if meetings float their boat, great. If they don't, great. Like in addition to all those other supportive things helping, now Trexone does, and I think because it's covering those receptors you know the biological reason i I can't answer that right so like it's it's to me that that's what i thought too that it's more like a psychological like security blanket kind of thing where it's like i got my shot and therefore using is pointless and i don't want to do it and then thus flows recovery and like and you know maybe that's not like the exact hinge for everybody but yeah to me it seems like biologically like at the level of of receptors and all that yeah i don't understand how an antagonist suppresses cravings but you know know. and some some folks tell me and this is kind of always makes me sad when i hear it is yeah i didn't like it i felt like and this is for folks taking it for alcohol too tablets or the injection it um kind of like numbed them like not in a good way kind of blunted their emotions, if you will, you know, part of that could be like early recovery and everything else is changing. Um, but either way, like people are like, I don't like feeling like a blob, you know? Yeah. Maya Solovitz has written about the, uh, maybe the anhedonia perhaps as a side effect. Yes, exactly. That's the exact word for it. Where, yeah, our bodies naturally produce, opioids that lock onto our receptors and if that receptor is totally blocked covered in super glue of naltrexone then yeah even the natural like feel good uh organic kind of opioids they're not getting on those receptors either and like it makes me think about exercising and working out or like a runner's high Maybe you can't get a runner's high if you're on naltrexone because right. like not. is it is it muted a bit, you know? Yeah. So that's that's fascinating. Yeah. And and those side effects like I think can also affect sexual function. So yeah. here's the thing, with Vivitrol, not so much a complaint. Buprenorphine occasionally that is a complaint. And that's probably cuz it's a partial opioid agonist. Um the same way whether it's um sexual function or um Things like constipation. If someone found real opioids to be constipating, sometimes they'll also find suboxone will do that too. And the same token, when I ask folks about what time of day, how do they like to take their dose, you know, suboxone, um, and I'll say to people, you know, a lot of people find don't take it much after like, you know, say six o'clock at night or something, because some people find it keeps them awake at night. And so these are the folks that like, Someone will say to me, oh, yeah, that's how, you know, real opioids kept me awake because that's how my wife always knew that I relapsed because I'd be up cleaning the kitchen at midnight, you know, and and those are the patients who avoid taking their Suboxone too late in the day because it can 
give you just a little bit of um, of an energizing effect. So, but the side effects, adverse effects, Vivitrol, a very uh, grave potential adverse effect, rare, but possibility is that it could make you feel suicidal or extremely acutely depressed, like a new onset, deep, dark, heavy depression. So that's something that we ask patients about at every visit, just to make sure, as rare as that is, that none of that is happening. I just had like one more follow-up on that on that last thread there, which with buprenorphine or like all opioids also, like at least in men, suppress testosterone. And so I wonder for, like, say you've been on buprenorphine for several years, maybe this person might, if they're a man, like maybe they need a, a testosterone supplement to kind of correct for the low sex drive or the studies do show that's a possibility not super prevalent um but i do have a few folks who have explored that when you know they're in like maintenance mode and they're like cruising along and they're doing great but they're like this is really kind of frustrating and they have found that supplementing with testosterone so they you know i recommend that they visit their primary care who can have those labs drawn and prescribe the testosterone if they believe that it's that it's appropriate. Okay, this is all really interesting and and these side effects can be uh, a little concerning but it seems like they can also be mitigated but because naltrexone seems to be thrown at so many different conditions um it's often prescribed off label which on the surface is fine. Uh, many drugs are prescribed safely off label. My favorite example is ketamine. Uh, which is prescribed off-label for treatment-resistant depression. Um, but with naltrexone, it can be prescribed for a lot of random stuff, it seems like. I mean... Yep, I did a uh, little research last night, and I was like, what? So so first and foremost, and again, these are like low-key, unusual, perhaps new, not well-known, not well-proven for sure. Yeah, exactly. I, that's kind of what I wanted to bring up some of these first. Like we mentioned alcohol. But I've also heard it being used for meth addiction. It was invented for alcohol in 2006. Naltrexone was invented for alcohol. And then they stumbled upon the fact that it was effective for opioids. Off-label uses, weight loss. Um, when it's, they, I think Contrave, it might be the brand name. It's like mixed with Wellbutrin. Higher than typical doses of Wellbutrin. Also, the generic is bupropion. Um, OCD, so for obsessive or compulsive behaviors, and not a lot of successful studies showing that, meaning the, the compulsive behaviors seem to abate and then come back, and then they increased the dose, and they abated, and then they came back. Um, and also some potential for alleviating pain for folks with fibromyalgia because it's thought to reduce inflammation, which I'm kind of like, huh? Um, and then last but not least, and this is a really interesting one for another day, perhaps the rapid opioid detox. So, Oh shit. Yeah. That's gnarly. Yeah. Which is like, Oh, it's yeah. Let's, let's just not just briefly. They literally just put you under anesthesia. Right. And then, do the naltrexone and then so you are functionally in a medically induced coma while your body is going through like a nightmare of withdrawal which like yeah that was a thing i think some there are like proponents of it but i think it's pretty dangerous sounding it's fallen by the wayside there used to be a, a clinic a couple towns away from me um very few insurances covered it and that clinic um like a private swanky kind of place They no longer offer it. It feels like a boutique kind of thing or something. One other thing I'll say about uh, off-label naltrexone is like I've heard that even like a low-dose naltrexone is being used or sought after for long COVID. Interesting. That's obviously very, very new. I I, I know someone who has some form of long COVID and and like it feels weird talking about this because it's all so new. Like I don't even know what long COVID is or if we even know... It's a real thing. Like, like it's, it's, it's. Yeah. Yeah. My, my wife actually has long COVID and she came to me and was like, Hey, I've been hearing, she's like in a support group. And she's like, I've been hearing people have been taking this for long COVID. And I'm like, why? 
Like, <laughs> that was my first reaction. And I tried to, like, uh, I mean, my her doctor prescribed her with two SSRIs for long COVID. And I'm, we're seeing a little bit of improvement, but it's like, I don't even think a lot of medical professionals know what long COVID is. And they're throwing everything they can at it. And it's, I guess naltrexone is just out there. And why not try that too? But I haven't seen any any evidence of efficacy. Can we talk a little bit more about how, you know, patients may be getting some coercion maybe or some misinformation on this drug? Like maybe they've heard bad shit about uh, buprenorphine and, methanu- and methadone. Um, so, like, you know, this would probably be a good place to, you know, emphasize the difference between addiction versus dependence. A lot of people hear about these these uh, these these drugs, uh, buprenorphine and methadone, and then they think, oh, well, that's just trading one addiction for another. Yep. And I just hear that and I cringe. And so this is a conversation that I have usually prior to drawing my terrible uh, receptor artwork and XY graphs. So when someone is at that crossroads and they're like, uh, like you know, they came in for for, for one thing. They, say they came in for the Vivitrol because they're like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be addicted to something else. And a lot of times they'll include because that's what mom said or that's what my wife said or oh, let's just call them a well-meaning loved one. Um, and that actually is the axe to grind of law enforcement and the. Um, you know, incarceration angle is that you're not going to be getting high if you take Vivitrol, right? You're not taking an opioid. And a lot of that has its roots in, um, you know, swear to God, puritanical New England type, you know, moralistic, you know, using drugs as a moral failure. Like, it's just such garbage, but it's reality. So it needs addressing. So what I like to do is I'll say to patients, you know, that's a good point that you bring up, but so let me ask you, tell me in your opinion, what's the difference between addiction and dependence, like physical dependence? And so the patient will say, you know, they'll think about it for a minute because it kind of throws them off and they're like, oh, and, and usually they, they're pretty much on track, you know? Um, but just to kind of clarify it, and I'll say, then this is kind of a, ridiculous example, but bear with me. So addiction, you know, by definition is like, you're using a substance that even though it might be harming you physically or psychologically, or you're quote unquote trashing your life, that's addiction because you're still using it, even though everything is crashing down around you and you're just going back for more and more and more. Physical dependence is just like biochemical. Like, for example, we're all physically dependent on air and food and water, right? So physical dependence is very different from addiction. Um, And then I give the example, and this is where the kind of ridiculous part is. Let's say you're taking lisinopril for your blood pressure. Well, your body is physically dependent on that to keep your blood pressure within acceptable safe parameters. If you suddenly just stop taking your blood pressure medication for whatever reason, most times your blood pressure is going to start going up to possibly unhealthy levels. Um, The example of insulin, which again, a little ridiculous, but let's say you take your insulin dependent diabetic, you're prescribed insulin every month, and you have discovered that if you take just a little extra you can just like party your socks off at Dunkin' Donuts and eat tons of pizza and ice cream and everything that you normally can't get away with. And, but this, you know, you're only given a small bottle of insulin every month. So now you're like robbing the CVS and you're, you know, selling your mother's silverware and stealing her car so that you can get some extra insulin. So you're trashing your life to get some extra insulin. Like, I know that's a silly example, but. you know, people kind of laugh and they're like, yeah. So, I mean, it gets, it gets them thinking. Um, And I think there's a, there's a statistic that 3% of substance users report that buprenorphine is their substance of choice to abuse. So 
a pretty small number, you know. Um, and then everyone always says, oh, yeah, but I know this guy, the, everyone at the methadone clinic, I don't know if they're on too much or what, but they're always looking like they're half asleep and everything. And I don't have much, I don't have any personal experience working in a methadone clinic and, um, you know, prescribing it or on that end of it. So I don't have a lot to to offer in defense of it. But but I do say that, you know what, for some people, I mean, it's it's great that people have a choice, right? So for some people, methadone is like the old gold standard of um, opioid replacement. It is it is exactly right for some people, you know? It's also super inconvenient and you have to like jump through hoops like you can't even imagine to get methadone. You know, you like you can't tell me anybody that is riding a bus around the state of Maine for four hours a day because they don't have transportation to get to the methadone clinic. You can't tell me that like they're they're probably not enjoying that. You know what I mean? But at any rate. Um but all of this really bleeds into uh when when patients come to you and they're like, well, maybe I should take Vivitrol instead because there's all this stigma against these other drugs. Exactly. So I do my best to, like, like I said, like educate them on, you know, how it works and the differences between the, the full opioid agonist, whether it's methadone or, or fentanyl or oxy, the partials of buprenorphine and the naltrexone. And, and I really don't, mince words when it comes to the um, statistics and the current, the facts about, about Vivitrol. Um, you know, it doesn't hit the mainstream news, right? It doesn't hit the mainstream news that recently the Alchemies, um, within the past 12 months, they were raked over the coals because they were um, lost a lawsuit in which several different inmates had died from overdose upon release from jail, given Vivitrol, and their families sued the company for lack of adequate uh, warning labels on the product, and they lost big time. So the warning labels have gotten larger, um, but it's still... Like it's it's pretty interesting in Massachusetts because we recently, um, well, a couple of years ago, started continuing your MAT if if you were incarcerated and you were prescribed um, either methadone clinic or Suboxone. They now continue it in most of our county jails, and um, the state prisons are doing it too. But that's I'm not as familiar with their parameters. Um, but it was up to each county, so like. All the counties in Massachusetts, except Worcester County, did this until they were forced to do it by the Department of Justice ruling in April. So that now they're like, oh, OK, we're going to do it as soon as we can. So they're in a super rush. Like this is the sheriff who's been in charge of this county, largest county, I believe, in Massachusetts for decades. Right. This is a guy who doesn't believe in distributing Narcan because it encourages drug use. I just can't even, you know. Ugh. But I mean, these are all some of the little smattering of facts as appropriate. I share with my patients. And I have like the best time having like cool handouts, like the Department of Justice finding Suboxone patients were discriminated against in various uh, agencies throughout the country, Indiana Board of Nursing. And I flipped the hand, the handout over, and I'm like, at the very least, if you can't sleep, just read this at bedtime, and it'll just knock you out. But on the reverse of the page is Massachusetts trial courts, so they were found guilty of discrimination, discrimination violating the civil rights under the American with Disabilities Act. So this refers to the drug court judges in their little each little fiefdom, who can say, nope, no suboxone in my courtroom or Suboxone or Vivitrol. But more often than not, it was no Suboxone. Um, so it's, um, it's interesting. Eventually that 
it's interesting to see the landscape is starting to change, you know? Yeah, totally. What gets my red flags raising or however we want to put it um, is that uh, there's just so much dark money and influence and trying to control this drug and push it onto people. And like, I'm like suspicious of naltrexone because of all that and not necessarily because of its pharmacological property. Well, you should be for both reasons. Yeah, there's just so much influence on this drug and people are making so much money off of it. That makes me really concerned off the bat. Um, But I was really liking what you were saying about how this sort of connects to this puritanical culture that dominates in America, um, which is like receiving pleasure from a drug is totally immoral. And, you know, if if you take methadone or buprenorphine and you somehow feel a little bit high from it or feel a little good or medical cannabis is another good example, because God forbid you take a drug and it gives you a little bit of euphoria along with it, because I, I I'll never be able to wrap my head around that logic. Unless it's an acceptable drug, like your um, fat cat drinking his bourbon at the country club. Oh, that's OK. Yeah. Or the uh, latte, grande, venti, whatever, super coffee. Right. Get jazzed up on your caffeine. Yeah. It's okay. That that's okay. But nothing else. Nope. Nope. Cannabinoid Adderall. If you have ADHD that you were prescribed and diagnosed decades ago. Nope. 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 You know, it's just my God. The disturbing aspects of the marketing efforts of alchemies are like low key criminal. Period. One hundred percent. Yeah. Like they actually had a lobbyist. And they're like, oh, he's a mental health expert. Advocate, they called him. Steve McCaffrey from Mental Health of America in Indiana. He was just advocating for his patients. And oops, come to find out he's... Sorry, did I forget to tell you? I'm not even exaggerating. He's a paid lobbyist for alchemies. Okay? So they had enough power and you know gazillions of dollars to have the word vivitrol written into indiana law and there's like that's like a thing that like you can't name a drug in the law right so then when people freaked out about that this is 2015 16 they were like oh oh okay we'll take the word vivitrol out and but they replaced it with wording directly from the Vivitrol marketing materials. Wow. From the pamphlets in my waiting room. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> the non-addictive choice. It's not Suboxone. I mean, it, it might as well just say it's not Suboxone. It's ghastly. I'm embarrassed they're from Massachusetts, honestly. Right. Like like the, the manufacturers of Vivitrol, Alchemies, they are well aware of like the, the biases and the prejudices and the stigma and like, like we're alluding to the, 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 the puritanical culture. Uh, and the death. They're aware of the deaths. Yeah. And, and they, they purposefully find an audience in things like in settings like law enforcement that are like already on board with with the logic and and so there's there's also like cinema there's also movies there, there's four good days and i'm gonna do a little bit of uh self-plagiarism here i wrote about this movie and here's like, like getting at what troy said about like he doesn't like you saying like you don't understand like the logic of that puritanical anti-pleasure stuff and it's like or like the hypocrisy about we're all dependent on coffee, but we can't be dependent on this thing. And, and like, there's something that like our belief, like the motivated reasoning in this stuff, like it's satisfying American culture and deeply held American assumptions in profound ways. And so here's like the, the snippet of of text I'll read that, that I wrote. uh, Yeah. Like just over a year ago when four good days come out. And so I say the harrowing withdrawal with its days of hellish sweats is the most obvious aspect of addiction to dramatize in a film. 
a trial of grit from which the character emerges transformed. Perhaps this is why naltrexone seems to be a favorite among some of America's drug court judges, who may view withdrawal as its own form of redemptive punishment. Maintenance treatments, as we have been talking about, are arguably more effective and don't require patients to be sick for a week, but they do not follow the dramatic path in which a character must reach a gripping, life-altering crisis point. In other words, methadone or buprenorphine is the easy way. It, 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 it's almost like it works too good, and God forbid we can't make people's lives that easy. Like, people need to, to, to suffer in order to, to, to grow and, and transform. And so there's something about, like, the, yeah, the, the American psychology that uh, kind of just works perfectly for alchemies and this drug. It's, um, it's just blatant disregard for, you know, the studies. Again, they're delivered every month, perhaps, with this tacky lunch. The XBOT study. Oh, you probably already have a copy of that. Yeah, you think? For past five years, I've got several of those in the trash. I mean, yep. So the XBOT study, and Troy, this is the uh, article that I had sent you. Yeah, can you just define what that is for listeners who have never heard of this before? What is the XBOT study? Just to back up a step, when Vivitrol was approved, Vivitrol was approved in the U.S., and I... I wish I had the year for this, but Vivitrol was approved in the U.S. based on one efficacy study, one, that was done in Russia, which is extra interesting because buprenorphine and methadone are not allowed in Russia. So, like, it's just, like, there's a picture of skewed, there's a picture of alchemies in the dictionary under that. It's crazy. But at any rate, in 2017... Now we've got some real research. And it was called the XBOT. And I, I wish I knew where they got that uh, catchy little name. But it wasn't statistically significant. But on the surface, it appeared as though Vivitrol was effective. I don't think you could really stretch it to say it was more effective than buprenorphine or, or methadone. But it was you know, the big problem was all the dropouts because the induction period is so difficult to get that seven to 10 days like we talked about. So that really threw a monkey wrench into the study because a, like 50% of the 28% did not like complete the study. They could not get on the medication because it's such a rough seven to 10 day induction period. So that was, the study was 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 full of holes, but it was, alchemies felt that it was worth handing out constantly and being proud of, which was interesting. But at any rate, University of North Carolina took another look recently at the data uh, used and published in that XBOT study. And when they reanalyzed it, they found something that they found really surprising. And that was that the XBOT study had missed several cases of overdose. Um, and so I guess from a statistical perspective, in the data set, I'm reading directly from this article. This is from February 2022. In the data set, overdoses were captured in two different columns. The XBOT researchers had completely overlooked one of those columns. And it's a standard practice in drug safety science to look at keywords in both columns, evidently. So when the UNC team reanalyzed the data with those additional overdose cases, they found that the hazard of overdose was 2.4 times higher in the naltrexone group than in the buprenorphine group. And that was considered a statistically significant difference. And when the XBOT researchers were presented with this, they were like, oh yeah, Oh, yeah, we didn't count those. Oops. I'm guessing the loved ones of all those folks that died of overdose, they probably counted them, though, right? You think? Yeah, they probably did. So, so much for the XBOT study. 
Yeah, and is this study used a lot? It is like handed over with a flourish in a colorful folder. Yeah, it, it, it's totally just manufacturing science. It's it's torturing data. Honestly, it's a waste of trees, for real. Yeah. <laughs> it is. But that, that practice is so common in big pharma. We just did this episode about this. The, I heard that with the Alzheimer's drug. Yeah. And, yes. Uh, but also... Basically, this is standard operating procedure in big pharma to just be able to present this research that's totally taken out of context. And it's legal. It's It should be totally legal. Some of these pharma execs, some of these marketing reps, they should be in prison. I mean, not really for a carceral solution, but I mean, where else do you put them? They deserve to be held accountable. That's the way I like to put it. Um, but it's legal what they're doing. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because when we have these lunches, because we also have you know, my, my hep C drug reps come uh, with information and we're prescribing the medication anyhow. It's just a giant waste of resources, but they're very pleasant and nice. And the medications are, that's the second favorite part of my job is being able to, to give my patients that sense of accomplishment of curing their hep C, you know? Um, yeah. But any drug rep, doctors, nurse practitioners, they have to sign, you know, stating that, I wasn't offered a trip to Uruguay or whatever. And I wasn't given a, a lunch that was excessively expensive or something. And every time I sign that form, I just think big pharma, Purdue, I'm like brought back to that, that special on Hulu. And it's, um, it just, it makes me so angry, you know, it's just. So you're saying like capitalism, markets aren't the greatest uh mechanism to solve an overdose crisis decades in the making yeah no yeah yeah i think that's like to kind of wrap this down and 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 try to uh kind of summarize some of the key takeaways here it's like naltrexone and vivitrol like these drugs were invented and just kind of like collected dust until they found a problem to then uh, generate massive profits off of. And yeah, there's something perverse about it and, and, and sick about it. And also just perfect for American healthcare and even more perfect for, I think, both political parties and their non-response to this problem where they kind of dilly-dally and dither and and expect the private market to step up and take care of this. And it's like, we've got pharmaceutical companies, we've got this private healthcare system, they're going to solve this. And we're going to do what? Sue Purdue? Sue the companies? And they'll put money toward treatment. Okay, that's great. How about paying for funerals? Yeah, that that money is going to fucking fill potholes just like the big tobacco money did. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, yeah, it, it's really quite uh, perfectly illustrative of um, how, how science is, you know, meaningless and how private, private corporations extract, uh, yeah, profit off of... Uh, epidemics and pandemics and and all the uh, ills we're seeing one thing we didn't talk about and i know we're going over here but diversion that's a big plus with vivitrol oh yeah yeah and so we'll think the first thing and i love this when i educate my patients i'll be like no you know you've got three my uh, my company you have to bring your suboxone wrappers back and i count them and we shred them. How humiliating. And, and I, I want to make sure that you're not diverting your suboxone, of course, because that is how we demonstrate that we're responsible prescribers to the DEA and whatnot. However, the state of Vermont, and so I'll, give the, I'll be like, make sure you always have proof of this prescription with you, whether it's the prescription bottle or baggie, or when you fill the script, you get an extra little piece, put that in your wallet. Because that essentially is your get-out-of-jail-free card. Because if you don't have proof of the script, the officer's not going to call your pharmacy from the side of 93. You know what I mean? So the state of Vermont recently decriminalized up to two 
124 milligrams of buprenorphine, so eight milligram films, you could have 28 of them without a prescription. You could have found them on a park bench, right? <laughs> and it's, it's been decriminalized. And what I like pointing out to patients is that's because Vermont was wise enough to realize that 108,000 people last year didn't die because they bought Suboxone on the street. It's because they bought the alternative. Wow. And that's pretty hard to argue with. Like, seriously? Yeah. Um, so, Nancy, uh, where can people find you? Do you have Twitter or Instagram or? M-O-U-D Barbie on Twitter. It's a great name. Yeah. Okay, great. I have Instagram, but I don't really use it. I don't even know if it's my. We have Instagram. I haven't updated it in a while. I hate Instagram so much. Um, anyway. I post pictures of, like, my toast on Instagram. That's about it. <laughs> Not even like avocado toast, just buttered toast. Twitter is, there's, you know, it's a mixed bag, but it's, I've had, I've found some of the greatest new um, research articles and resources. It's just like awesome. Um, I told Troy, I'm like, my goal in life now is to, you don't have to print the internet. Because I can't tell you how many of both of your articles just, you know, got to print them because I can't read on a screen or something. It's crazy. Although it does make for a nice handout for my patients. So I, I have like little stacks of handouts like, oh, help yourself. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that, that you're doing what you're doing. And, and thanks for. Oh, my God. I love my job. I tell patients all the time. It took me until I was 53 years old when I started this five years ago that I was like, wow, I can't believe this took me this long to get to have a job that I can't wait to get to every morning. And then immediately I was like, wait a minute, I'm actually lucky I found that because some people yeah. never do, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's great. And this is a great conversation. Uh, I think this has been really informative and like, you know, we're not saying that naltrexone is bad or necessarily evil. I don't think a drug can be evil, but it's just but- not for everyone. And I don't think people have enough context about this drug. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show and helping people learn about this. All right. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Bye, Nancy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Troy Farah, Christopher Moraff, and Zachary Siegel. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can find out more at narcocast.com support us by joining our patreon just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica patrons get free stickers which are personally mailed to them and can request a shout out on the show and now patrons can even get 30 percent off merch in our new store which is at narcocast.myshopify.com we have t-shirts and coffee mugs one that says there are drugs in here is awesome more stuff will be added soon as always we're so grateful to the folks that make this show possible